We are uh, at the end of a series right now we've been doing for the last several weeks called Summer Classics. And so we've been spending some time just this summer just talking about the classic passages in the Bible that are things that have moved us or gripped us or shaped us or launched us into our, our life of ministry with Christ or a life with Christ, whatever those things have been. And so maybe you've missed some of those. I want to just steer you back to our online opportunities to hear those, whether it's on the Lakeside app or the Lakeside homepage, lakesidechurch.com. If you've missed any of these, go back and check them out because we've been talking about passages from the Bible that you should know. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been with him very long, you should know them. But sometimes they become so familiar that we sort of lose the meaning of them. And so go back, pick up the ones you've, you know, you've missed maybe, or maybe go back through the whole series and just lock on to these things that God says, these things are classics, I want you to know them. Today, we have room in the schedule for one more classic piece of scripture before we move on to the next things that I think God has for us in our agenda as a church. And uh, so I thought, you know, just instead of me just picking the one thing that I, I think is the, the last classic that we ought to get to, I, I went out to my Facebook friends this week, my great theological repository called Facebook, and I said, hey, you guys, you friends of mine, just give me some input. Is there a classic passage of the Bible that you think we miss, we haven't talked about yet, and you'd like us to talk about it? So some people responded in with various verses, and they were very helpful. Somebody said, you should talk about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You know that one? Yeah, hum a, hum a few bars, Pastor Brad, then we'll, you know, we'll pick it up from there. Yeah, yeah, I know. So um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Is that a classic? Yeah, that's a classic. I'm thinking, okay, now I'm running out of space, so I'm thinking maybe next summer we'll do summer classics due. I mean, they can do it in the movies, right? So let's see, let's see how that goes next year. So I'm, I'm adding that to my list. So uh, somebody else said, how about Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6? You know that one? Hmm. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Oh, now you know it. <laughs> Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your paths straight. Thank you. Right? Wouldn't you like to have straight paths? My path so often goes like this. It meanders. It wanders. I'm like, God, I'd just like to go straight for a day, just to go straight. And that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So I'm thinking I'm going to add that to next summer's classics, too. So I got these suggestions from friends on Facebook, but I was a little bit surprised. Actually, I was a lot surprised because there was one verse that I thought for sure somebody would put up on my Facebook page and say, Pastor Brad, this one. And nobody, nobody did, and it was just so interesting because if you've ever heard Billy Graham preach, he has put this passage, this one verse, he's put it in every sermon I've ever heard him preach. I'm not sure Billy Graham has ever spoken without having this verse in there, and yet this one verse that we're about to talk about, this verse may be at risk of being the salt that lost its flavor. Because it's so familiar to us that maybe it's, maybe it's lost its taste. Maybe we go, well, I, I know that one, I know that one. But we don't ever dive into it and say, well, let it season my life. Maybe. I mean, it's a, it's a verse that shows up in end zones at football games. Maybe you know that one now, right? I mean, sometimes you see it on license plates. Sometimes you see it on people with crazy hair. This guy, I think, was the original John 3-6 dude in the end zone. This guy, I think. I don't know his name, but I think that's true. Sometimes it shows up on the bottom of your soda cup. 
Did you know that? Sometimes it shows up on Tim Tebow's eye black, which is kind of cool. Sometimes it shows up on The Simpsons. I don't know why, but there you go, right there. On, sometimes it shows up in the World Series celebrations. Go Giants and go Jesus, John three sixteen. Sometimes it shows up in the NBA Finals. Thank you to those guys for cooperating. Appreciate that. Sometimes, sometimes people get tasered for it. Sometimes we just need to keep calm and read it. Sometimes it actually shows up in church. Anybody bring a sign today? And there's a Yoda translation. You have to read that for yourself because I, I can't do Yoda. Three sixteen John. You know this one? Not the Yoda version. I mean, you know, the, the John 3.16, you know that one? Yep. Yeah, it's like it's one of the most familiar verses, maybe the most familiar verse in the Bible. It's certainly the most familiar reference in the Bible. John 3.16. I think there's people that see it and don't even know what it was. I have a friend who saw it for several times at a football game, and eventually he said, i got to find out what that is. He researched it. He found out it's in the Bible, and it's in John chapter 3, verse 16. He found it, he read it, and he decided to put his faith in Christ. Wow. I know. Amazing. It's this amazing, powerful, wonderful verse. I believe this verse contains the 25 most significant words ever put together in one sentence. And we know it. But maybe we could know it better. And maybe if we knew some of the background of it, we would say, oh, now it can shape my life more. And that's what I want for us. So we're going to read this verse together, and then I just want to dive back into some of the backstory and let you know where it came from, and then we're going to talk about the words of this verse and see what God does to shape us. All right, so let's read this together. You guys put this up, please. Thank you. So here's John 3.16. We're all going to read it together out loud with gusto. Ready? Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son... That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16. Good. Ian, got it down? Let's talk about where it came from. I think if you understand some of the background and where it came from, it'll help you kind of figure out now what's this thing about and how does it work out in my life. All right? So we're going to look at John chapter 1, 2, and 3 today. If you have your Bible and you want to open up and look to this, that would be great. John chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's, now this is a little bit confusing because John, the gospel, is written by John the Apostle, and in his book called John, he writes about John the Baptist. Okay, so stay with me when we cover a couple of these different Johns, okay? So first off, the Apostle John writes this book, and he starts off with an introduction. Most good books have an introduction or kind of a set the stage kind of thing, so the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 is an introduction, and he starts off with some very familiar words. John 1, 1. In the beginning. Have you heard those before? Where do they come from? They come from Genesis. He ripped them off. (laughs) Little plagiarism right there in the Bible, right? He's like, well, those are good words. That's a good way to start a book. Let's start there. So he takes Genesis 1, 1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then he transferred that opening statement to his book, and he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, some of you have heard that before, but just stop for a second. That's really weird. 
That's a weird part of the Bible. And some of you are thinking, no, 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 it's in the Bible. It can't be weird. Look, there's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. Have you read it? There's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. And here's one of them. So he says, in the beginning was the word. So what word? Which word? So, okay, so if you've read a little bit, if you read down farther in chapter 1, you'll find out he's using this title, the word, to refer to Jesus. So you could, you could plug Jesus' name in there and kind of understand the gist of it. He, he says, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. That's still weird. All right, some of you are Christians, you go, no, no, it's the Trinity and all this. You know, okay, do you think you got that dialed in? Here, how about this? I introduce you to myself, and I say, hi, my name's Brad, and I am Brad, and I'm with Brad. That's weird. So, you know, you got to deal with that. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you go, what does that mean? And so if you jump down farther in John chapter 1, you come to verse 14, and he helps us out a little bit. He says, the Word, that's Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, remember that phrase, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Here's the point of the beginning of John, the introduction of John. Here's the point. Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh and lived among us. Literally, it says he pitched his tent next to ours. He became flesh. God became flesh, and he pitched his tent next to ours, and we saw his glory, the glory as of the one and only Son, full of grace and truth. How did John and the other disciples know that Jesus was the Son of God? Because they saw in him this, this thing they'd never seen in any human being before. They saw this thing where he balanced perfectly grace and truth. You ever try and bring a balance to grace and truth in your life? Most of us land really heavy on truth, but not much grace. Or way over on grace, but not much truth. They knew he was God because they saw in him perfectly connected grace and truth. And he dwelled among us. Verse 18 then says, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only son, there's that phrase again, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the father, he has made him known. So if you want to know God, get to know Jesus. And that's the invitation of the beginning of the book of John. It's about, it's about Jesus, who is God the Son, who is God in the flesh, who is the Messiah. And, God, and John, the writer, wants us to believe in him. That, that's how the story rolls out. The next part that comes in John chapter 1 is John the Baptist is there. Not John the disciple, but John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is down at the Jordan River. And he's baptizing people. And everybody's coming to John to be baptized. And, and when he's baptizing them, he's saying, Now this baptism is for repentance. So I want you to turn away from your sin. And I want you to turn toward God. That's what we're doing with this baptism. And they all said, Yeah, yeah, we get it. And so many people were crowding to John to get baptized by him that the religious leaders up in Jerusalem took notice of that, and they sent some emissaries down to the Jordan River to check John out. And they're watching him, and they're pretty impressed. In fact, they're thinking, maybe this guy's the Messiah. We've been waiting for the Messiah. Maybe he's him. And so after a while, they just got up some courage, and they went to John, and they asked him, hey, excuse me, John, sir, are you, are you the Messiah? And he said very clearly, no, I am not, but he is And he pointed straight to this guy they didn't know. His name was Jesus. He was from Nazareth. 
And John pointed at him and said, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the whole book of John the disciple who wrote it, the whole book is about pointing people to Jesus so that they believe in him. Well, after Jesus was baptized by John, then he began calling people out to be his followers. Same thing he's doing today. Jesus is going throughout the world through his followers and calling other people to be his followers. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, he's calling to you. He's saying, I would like you to follow me. You get to decide. You get to make the choice. We'll see that in a minute. But he's calling you to follow him. You've got to figure out if that's worth it or not. And so the whole point of chapter 1 is Jesus is the Son of God, He's God in the flesh, and He's calling you to follow and believe in Him. And that leads you to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 has two stories, and this all leads up to John chapter 3 and verse 16 pretty soon. There's two stories in John chapter 2. The first story is the story of Jesus' first miracle. John says it was Jesus' first sign. A sign is just a miracle with meaning. And it's a little bit hard, frankly, to figure out the meaning of this particular miracle. Because what happens is, Jesus is at a wedding. He's up in Galilee at a little town called Cana. And he's there at a wedding. And I don't know if his, you know, his cousin's getting married or his buddy's getting married. Or if he just came along because he was an important rabbi by now. I don't, I don't know what, but he's at a wedding. His mom also, Mary, happens to be at the wedding. And a disaster happened at the wedding. They ran out of wine. I know what happened. My, my oldest daughter just got engaged recently, and so she's planning this wedding, and I, you know, I know what happened. The dad at the wedding ran out of cash. <laughs> Shorted the wine guy, you know, run out of wine. And so Jesus' mother's there. That's a very embarrassing thing in that culture. And so Jesus' mother is there, and she comes to Jesus, and she says, Jesus, they ran out of wine. It's terrible. And Jesus looks at his mother and says, woman, what does that have to do with me? And some of you are like, Jesus forgot the fifth commandment. (laughs) Honor your father and mother. It's like, you can't speak to her that way. She's your mother. Okay, that's just a Jewish way of saying, mother, it's not my time yet. He's not trying to be rude. He's just trying to say, you know, it's, it's not my time yet. His mother totally ignores him, blows him off, and says to the host of the wedding, do whatever he says. The Bible doesn't say this, but I think Jesus looked at her and said, Mom! (laughs) The Bible doesn't say that part. Okay, I made that part up. She says to the host at the wedding, do whatever he says. Jesus goes, okay. So he says, get some barrels. They brought some barrels out. He says, fill them up with water. They fill them up with water. And then Jesus did whatever he did, and he changed the water into wine. They took out a, a dipper of this wine. They brought it to the MC, the master of ceremonies of the wedding. And he tastes it, and he's like, this is not like any wedding I've ever been to. Most people bring out the really good wine first, and then they bring out the two-buck chuck. You did it all the way backwards. You brought out the cheap stuff first, and now you brought the really good wine. He didn't know where it came from. He didn't know that Jesus just conjured it up. He made it out of water. It's the first miracle of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. Why that one? I mean, it's not a very, it's not a very controversial miracle. Who doesn't like a good Cabernet? John says it's the first sign. It's the first sign that this 
rabbi is not just a rabbi. He's not just a wandering teacher, but he is the son of God, the Lord of the universe. And everything in nature bows to him. And if he says water needs to become wine, it does. And then you go on in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and you come to the second story. And what happens is after the wedding, it becomes time for the Passover holiday. And so Jesus is going to go up to Jerusalem with his disciples. They all head up there in their pack. They get up into the, into the hills in Jerusalem. They get into the temple where the major part of the celebration of the Passover is going to take place. And Jesus looks around and he's absolutely disgusted. There are, there are animal salesmen in there. They're selling doves and sheep and goat and cattle and things like that. And they're running wild in the temple. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of worship. But they've made it a marketplace. What's worse is everybody who came to the temple had to sacrifice an animal. And so now you had to buy one of the temple animals. And if you had your own little flock of sheep, you're a shepherd, you had your own sheep, you couldn't use your sheep. You had to buy one of their sheep. And you couldn't trade one of your sheep for one of their sheep straight up. Because they always thought their sheep were better. So they charged more. Not only did they charge more, but they said, your, your money's no good here. you got to change your money. So you brought that Roman money. You think we're going to take those denarii here? We're not doing that. you got to change that denarius into a, you got to change that into a temple coin. But the exchange rate was horrible. Against the people who wanted to worship in favor of the priests who were running the whole machine. And Jesus got so angry that he, he, his eyes flashed and he got big muscles and he turned green. <laughs> oh, okay, that part's not in the Bible either. But that's what it's like. So sometimes you get a picture of Jesus and you go, oh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He never gets mad. He just never, you know, he's always kind and always gentle and, and wimpy. Like, that's not so. When you read that story in John chapter 2, you know Jesus is in charge of the temple and Jesus is in charge of the universe. He said, you've made my father's house into a market and it was supposed to be a house of prayer and he cleaned house. He made a whip to make it happen. It was a violent move on Jesus' part. And he cleaned house in the temple. And that did not lead to goodwill with the priests and the religious leaders. But it did lead to chapter 3. See, what happens in chapter 3 is there's a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. I want to read some of that story and then come back and talk about it. And then we're going to get to our verse. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Let's wait for a second right there. Here comes Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, which means he's a big-time rule keeper and a VIP. 
He's also a member of the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin, which means he's a spiritual politician or a religious politician and a VIP. And he comes to Jesus, and John says he comes at night because he's not really committed to Jesus yet. He's just kind of checking it out. And he comes at night because he doesn't want his other Pharisee and priest buddies to know that he's coming. And he comes in at night, and he's going to have this little conversation with Jesus. Now, what he really wants is to have sort of an academic, theoretical conversation with Jesus. And he starts off just by buttering him up. Oh, Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, we know that you're a teacher who comes from God. I want to know who's we. Really, Nicodemus and the rest of the council, they, they know that Jesus came from God? I don't think so. I think, I think Nicodemus is sort of using the editorial we. You know, we know, I, I know that you came from God, but all he's really trying to do is butter him up. He, what he's really thinking behind that is, I don't have a clue where you came from, but you're really interesting. He says, we know that you're a teacher who came from God because no one could do the stuff you do unless God was with him. And you ever been in one of those conversations where you're, you're kind of going down one track and then somebody else just, the next sentence of the conversation is totally a non sequitur. It goes a totally different direction. And you're like, what just happened? That's what Jesus did to Nicodemus. Oh, Rabbi, we know that you're from God. We know you're this great teacher, that you're doing this amazing stuff. Jesus says, nobody gets to see the kingdom of God unless they've been born again. Were we talking about the kingdom of God? Were we talking about being born? Were we, were we talking about that, Jesus? Nicodemus says, I don't get it. Jesus said, I'll explain it to you. He said, people can be born of water, but they also need to be born of the spirit. There's a natural birth that gives, that gives birth to natural life. There's a spiritual birth that gives birth to spiritual life. Everybody is born naturally. Everybody is born physically. How many of you were born physically? About 30%. rest of you need to sign in as aliens. Yeah, if, you've got, if you can pinch it or scratch it or break it, you were born physically. You were born naturally. That's how it goes. And whether you came out normally or whether you came out through a cesarean delivery, whatever it is, you were born physically. You have a physical life. If you were born physically, you have a physical life and you live in a physical culture and you have been shaped by that physical culture your whole life. And everybody gets in on that one. And everybody is unbelievably influenced by that physical culture, that natural culture around us. But Jesus said there is a spiritual life that comes from a spiritual birth. And that's what I want you to have. No one, unless they are born of the Spirit, no one sees or enters or engages in the kingdom of God. You don't engage in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, a lot of people take that phrase and go, I don't want anything to do with that. That's, that's a group of people that are wild-eyed evangelicals, and they just like, you got to be born again. And I, you know, they kind of co-opted that word, and I don't want any part of that. It's not an evangelical word. It's not a church word. It's a Bible word. It comes from Jesus. He said, unless you're born again, which means unless you are born of the Spirit, you will not have an engagement in the kingdom of God. You will not have life in the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus scratched his head. He said, I I still don't get it. How can this be? Jesus said, aren't you a teacher of Israel? 
Aren't you one of the religious higher-ups? Aren't you the one who's supposed to understand spiritual stuff? Let me put it lower for you. And so then Jesus goes on, and, and this won't sound all that low necessarily, but Nicodemus knew exactly what he was talking about all the way around. Jesus said, remember that story when the people of Israel were out in the wilderness and they were wandering, they'd left Egypt and they were going to go to the promised land, but they had to stop in the wilderness and they wandered for 40 years. Remember that? Nicodemus was like, yeah. He said, while they were out there, God got angry with them because they were so rebellious and so stubborn. They grumbled so often. God sent a plague among them. And then they cried out to God. They said, we're sorry. Please stop the plague. And God said to Moses, carve an image of a snake, attach it to a stick, and lift it up. And he said, everyone who looks up to the snake will be healed. Now, I'm not going to get back to all the imagery of the snake and all that's behind that, but know this. Moses lifted up the snake, and everyone who looked to it and entrusted their life to it at that moment was healed. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now again, you don't know what that's talking about unless you have some biblical background. Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about because in that culture, lifted up was a euphemism for something else. In the first century B.C., in the first century A.D., in a period of about 200 years, hundreds of thousands of people were crucified by the Roman government. Sometimes we get the idea that Jesus was the only one who was ever crucified. He's our Savior. He was crucified for us. No, crucifixion was just the normal form of execution in that generation. And hundreds of thousands of human beings over the course of a couple hundred years, maybe, were crucified by the Roman army, including Jesus. And whenever they crucified someone, they had a phrase for that. They had a euphemism for that. And it was this, we lifted him up. When a person was crucified, they laid the cross down on the ground. They nailed the person's hands and feet to that cross. And they lifted that cross up and then dropped it in a hole. They were lifted up from the earth. That's what Jesus was referring to. And Nicodemus knew exactly what he was saying because that was the phrase. That's what they called it. He said, just as the serpent was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, crucified, and everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Everyone who believes in him will be engaged in the kingdom of God. And that brings you to John 3.16. See, John 3.16 is a commentary on the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. The Apostle John, when that, when that whole conversation was over, after God had all written down, he said, that needs some explanation. There were some weird things going on in that conversation. So I'm going I'm to give you a little commentary on it, and it begins in John chapter 3, verse 16. And again, these 25 words that John crafted together, I believe are the most significant words ever crafted in any language. And what I want to do is finish up by just talking to you about these words in this verse, with all of that background. Knowing where it came from, I want you to know what it does and what it says. Let's take the nouns first. First noun, God. In the beginning, God. The creator of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, God almighty, El Shaddai, all-powerful, king of the world, king of the universe, 
the one who sustains life on this planet, God. And everything in your life is dependent on the fact that God wants you still to live. Because he's God and we are not. Every aspect of our life is dependent on this God. And it all begins with him for God. Next noun, world. It's the Greek word cosmos. It's the, world from we, you know, it's the word from which we get our word cosmic. It means universal, the universe. It's the world of everything God created, but it also means the world of humanity. It's all the humans on this planet. So in that regard, it refers to me. God loved the world. That's me. So I could say God loves me. I could say it just as clearly, God loves you. Because you are part of that world. You are part of that world of humanity. You. I could say, God loves my children. Those who love him, those who don't, God loves my children. I could say, God loves your children. Those who are close to God right now and those who are far away, God loves them. They are part of this world. Every time I speak on a weekend, I pray, God, there's going to be somebody's son or daughter in the room who's far from God. And they're going to need to hear your word today. And you may be somebody's son or daughter that someone has prayed for for a long, long time. And you've pushed it off and pushed it off and pushed it off. You have to know this. God loves you. Because you are part of the world. The next noun is son. God so loved the world, us, that he gave his son, Jesus, the one who was with God and the one who is God. Jesus has a unique relationship with God the Father, and that's why we call him God the Son. But Jesus has a unique relationship with human beings. That's why we call him Son of Man. He is Son of God and Son of Man. He is unique in all the world so that he is Prepare to be the mediator between God and the world. God the Son. And the last noun in the verse is life. Eternal life. Not just everlasting life. Who wants everlasting life? Not me if it's bad. I mean, right? Who, if, your life, if your life stinks as it is, you want it to go on forever? It's not everlasting life, it's eternal life. It's a different kind of life. It's a different nature of life. It's a different quality of life that the world around us cannot offer. And they try, and they try and find this life everywhere they turn. They try and find this life, and they can't find it. You can't find this, you can't find this life in this world apart from God's Son. God, world, Son, life. Now think of the verbs. Loved. God loved. That's the Greek word agape. Some of you know that word. It's a word that means sacrifice. It's a love that loves so strongly that it gives up that which is precious to the lover for that which is also precious to the lover. Sacrificial love always is costly to the lover. And it is always beneficial to the beloved. In this pattern, God is the lover. You are the beloved. 
it cost him his son to love you. It cost him his son whom he sacrificed for you. God so loved that he gave. It's the next verb. It's the natural outcome of loving. When someone loves, they give. It's just how it goes. They give time, they give energy, they give gifts, they give. When someone loves, they give. When someone loves, they become generous, at least toward that one whom they love or to those people whom they love. God loved the world so much that he gave that son. Best gift ever. Next verb is believe. To those who believe in him. It's a word that means to entrust something to someone else. If I, if I believe in you enough and I say, I'm, I'm going to entrust my car to you. I'm going to give you my car keys. I'm going to give you my car. Please bring it back without extra scratches. You know, pre, please bring it back in the condition that it was when you got it or maybe wash it and make it better. I entrust it to you. I trust you with it. When you come to Jesus and he says, to whoever believes in him, it's saying, I, w- I will entrust my life to Jesus. Some of us at some point in our life, we entrusted our life to Jesus. In my life, when I was about eight years old, I'm sure I didn't understand everything, everything yet. I don't even yet understand everything about him. But when I was about eight years old, I said, Jesus, I'm going to entrust my life to you. And Jesus said, I'll give it back to you better than it was. Perish. Will not perish which is the only negative verb in the verse. It's a word that means destruction, which is exactly what it feels like to live a life separated from God. Will not perish, but have. To have obviously means to own something, to possess something. That means I have it now. I'm not going to have it someday. I'm not going to get it someday. I don't have to die to get life. I have it now. When I believe in Jesus and I entrust my life to him, I have life as my possession now. And then the pronoun. Do you remember pronouns? Whoever. may be the best word in the verse. Whoever. Who is whoever? I'm whoever. I'm sure that. I'm whoever. Are you whoever? Sometimes people get the ideas like, oh, I could never be whoever. I could never be accepted by Jesus. He'd never take me because I know what I'm like. Pastor Brad, you don't know what I'm like. Listen, I have a pretty good idea. Because I know what I'm like. And I know we're all in the same boat together. Whoever. Some people say, oh man, I've done so many bad things, God would never take me. He says, whoever. The Greek word literally is the word all. All who believe. Period. You can be whoever. Whoever. 
if you believe. Now, that verse, with all that background, always comes to a place where you have to make a decision with it. You cannot hear that verse and thoughtfully not make a decision. You have to decide, will you believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who is God and was God, who was called out as the Messiah, who called people to follow him, who was master of grapes and vineyards and wine and everything on this planet. You have to decide if you'll believe in a God who loved you like that. And sometimes, frankly, people don't want to. I mean, I'd rather do it myself. I'd rather do it my own way. But sometimes people come to the place in their life where they say, I've tried all that. That didn't work at all. And we turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need to believe in you. I need to entrust my life to you. And the promise of John 3.16 is that everyone who makes that decision to believe him, to entrust your life to him, everyone who believes has that life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's my prayer for you. Jesus, I pray for us today. Only you know everybody's heart. There's no one who knows everyone's heart in the room but you. Lord, I pray for everyone here. There's a lot of people in the room who have already trusted you. They've already committed their life to you by faith. So I'm grateful for them. For them, would you remind them of the life of the spiritual culture that you want them to live in? The eternal culture that you want them to live in? that you have given them birth into. May they remember it, may they live it out, may they celebrate it. And Lord, there are some in the room, I'm certain there are some in the room who are just making a decision today. Jesus, this is my day. Here's my decision. I decide to trust you with my life, my eternal life, starting today. And my prayer, Jesus, is that you would be faithful to your promise and say yes to them. Jesus, thank you for hearing our prayers. Amen. Some of you, maybe for the first time today, have have prayed that prayer. Jesus, this is my day. I trust you. Give me what this verse talks about. Give me that life. If that's you today, I'm going to be out in the lobby after our worship gathering. Would you just meet me out there and let me know that? Let me know that decision. I want to be able to pray for you and to encourage you down that road and in that journey. That would be an amazing thing. And if not me, then tell someone that you came with or tell someone that you know has been praying for you. They would love to know. God bless you all.